This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to our special holiday edition of Bird Hugger. This is the last show of 2023. As we wrap up season four and get geared up to start season five, I would like to thank all of you for your continued support of Bird Hugger. We look forward to your emails with comments and ideas to keep the show current and interesting. We couldn't do it without you. So whether you celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, or Diwali, I want to wish all of you a very merry holiday and a very happy new year. To keep things festive, we have a special guest for our holiday episode. Today, we speak with Maria Rodale from the legendary Rodale Organic Gardening family. We will talk about her new book, Love Nature Magic. We'll be covering the topics of gardening, birds, and shamanic journeying. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Maria Rodale to the show. Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we couldn't be any happier to have you here on the show. Your name is instantly recognizable. Anyone who is a gardener is going to recognize the name Rodale. But with this book, you seem to be leading your family legacy in a whole new direction. Could you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So my family is rooted in farming and gardening and food and health. And I mean, I am also rooted in that. But as I've gotten older and gotten more confidence to be my true self, let's put it that way, uh, I realized that my path is as much a spiritual one as a environmental, biological one. And actually, it's really connected. And I've thought a lot about how we deal with nature, how we work with nature, 
and how that reflects how we work with the environment and the state of the world that we're in. So this book was just a real exploration of all the things that I personally have loved. And it feels like in in a way, it's even just the beginning of this whole exploration for me. Right. So now you've been writing for years. I mean, a lot of people know you as Maria Rodale, but also as Mrs. Pinochle, correct? That's right. <laughs> right. So you got started writing for children. Could you touch mm-hmm. on that a moment and tell us how it evolved into you wanting to write for adults? I started writing for adults. I've been writing for adults for the last 30 years. But about 10 years ago, I was CEO of the publishing company and I got frustrated realizing that by the time we're grown-ups, our habits are so ingrained, it's like hard to change. That the real way to change the world is through getting children off on the right footing. And I'd always, always, since I was little, wanted to write kids' books. So I started an imprint at Rodale called Rodale Kids. And then I decided to publish some alphabet books under the pen name Mrs. Pinochle because I didn't want people to think, you know, I was uh, <laughs> just vanity publishing. I have three kids. I have two grandkids. And I was really determined to create books that were both fun and educational for kids and the parents. And when we sold the company about six years ago, I thought I would never see Mrs. Pinochle again. But (laughs) Penguin Random House, who bought the Rodale Books business, called me up and said, we want more. And to this day, I'm still writing more. I just finished two more books. And I've sold more Mrs. Pinochle books than all my other books combined. (laughs) That is great. (laughs) So Mrs. Pinochle lives on. She definitely lives on. (laughs) Great. So now in your newest book, you say nature is the mystery we dream of understanding. But you don't mean intellectually from a textbook, right? I think from all perspectives. It's everything, you know, from like, what is this bug and why does this plant look like this to why are we here? (laughs) What is our role in the world? So it's the whole spectrum from the small to the big, which is what nature is. It's everything. It's that whole spectrum. Now, I love the structure of the book. It's like you've created the book to be actually be a shamanic journey. Yeah, well, I started doing the shamanic journeys to these plants and animals, not realizing that it was going to be a book. And after about two or three of them, I was like, wow, this could be a book. And then I found a publisher who supported that. Chelsea Green has been a great publisher. And my editor, Fern Bradley, who I've known for decades, was very supportive. And from there, everything happened kind of sequentially. All the journeys happened in the order in which I write them about. So I was learning as much as the reader is learning. And in fact, Fern said to me, she's like, well, where's this book going? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) We're all going to figure this out together. So it was a really fun experiment. That is great. Now you talk about the fascist dictator in the garden (laughs) and how it's important to let go of that. Yeah especially in these times. I'm starting to, even more than what I wrote about in the book, I'm just starting to realize how much we are trained from very early on to demonize certain things, whether it's us, an invasive plant or a pest bug or a different religion or culture than us. And we're kind of taught that eradication is possible and that If we could just get rid of 
mosquito, for example, (laughs) life would be great and we'd all be happy. But the whole process of writing the book, I realized for everything we want to eradicate, like we need those things. Without the mosquito, we wouldn't have mosquito larvae and mosquito larvae keep the water clean. And they're the main source of food for like fish and amphibians and birds. So it's really, I think, time to change the paradigm about the need to eradicate anything, whether it's a plant or a bug or a religion, and learn how to live with diversity, which is an inherent sign of health in nature. When there is a diverse ecosystem, whether it's in a garden or on a farm or in the woods, there is health and vibrancy and abundance. And isn't that what we want? Right. So, you know, the image for so many people with gardening, even today, is getting ready for combat. Pull on the boots, put on the jacket, get the gardening gloves, put on the bug spray, pull out the rake, the hoe, the cultivators, the weed whackers, and you go out there and you, yeah, it's hand to hand combat. And it doesn't matter whether you're an organic gardener or a conventional gardener. You know, we've all been trained in that mentality or even from a health perspective, win the war on cancer. What I'm learning, what I learned through this process is that as long as we think of anything as a war, it's going to continually escalate. So the shift that we have to make is one of collaboration, win-win, community, Since I wrote that book, I haven't really weeded that much at all. And I have beautiful flower beds and roses that I've been growing for 20 years that, you know, no major problems. But since I've stopped weeding, my roses have doubled in size. I mean, they're like 20 feet high. (laughs) You know, all the things that I normally would have pulled out are still there and they're happy too. So I think that there's You know, there's so much we don't understand about the soil and root systems and, you know, how plants communicate with one another. I'm a big fan of Suzanne Simard's book, Finding the Mother Tree, where she's a scientist, PhD, who actually did discover that the roots of different species of trees are communicating with each other and helping each other. And I think that that is something that happens in more than just trees. I think it's in everything. So now each section of your book, you're taking a shamanic journey and talking to different living things like the lanternfly and the mosquito. And in this mosquito section, the mosquito says we tend to kill what we love. So how does that apply to humans? With the mosquito, I discovered a lot of research and video of DDT and the use of DDT and trying to like win the war with the mosquito And, you know, there's actual footage of people spraying kids on playgrounds and sitting at picnic tables eating with DDT. And it's like, aren't we so great as humans that we can kill the mosquito and it's not harming anything? But the mosquito is just fine. (laughs) But we've damaged our children. And there's even a study I saw. There's a new documentary out called Organic Rising that DDT research in multi-generations of lab mice have shown that in like three or four generations, even if you stop giving the mice DDT, 
the offspring are obese. So, you know, here we have this obesity epidemic and we're like blaming people's willpower or the big gulps that they're drinking or the fact that they're not exercising. But in reality, we have been changing our chemical DNA structure and poisoning our children and ourselves for some kind of fantasy ideal that isn't real. So I think we we don't always think about the consequences of our actions. And DDT almost wiped out a lot of birds, including exactly. eagles. Exactly. So the main point I think I come to in the book is like, we have to learn how to live in harmony and balance with nature and not trying to like kill or destroy or eradicate anything. And we will all be healthier as a result. There is no benefit to killing something just for the sake of trying to make something look better or easier. I mean, obviously we have to kill things to eat them and that's a separate story. That's in the deer chapter. <laughs> right. And I know you say in the book that when you're standing in a very extremely tidy chemical laden landscape, you almost feel like you can't breathe. I know that feeling. Right, right. Yeah. And I get this tingly allergic reaction on my upper lip. So I definitely am sensitive to it. What always strikes me is the dead silence. There no pollinators, no birds. It's just this sterile garden with all these pretty flowers, but there's nothing benefiting from it. Right. And we think, you know, this this goes back to killing what we love. We think, oh, well, well, bugs are gross and scary and we should just get rid of them. But, you know, bugs are a huge source of food for birds. So we love birds. You know, birds are amazing. But you kill the bugs, you're killing the birds. And we've all seen a decline in the biodiversity of both the insect world and the bird world. And that doesn't have to be that way. Now, you talk a great deal in the book about shamanic journeying. For our listeners who maybe have never tried that before, could you maybe explain what it's like and how you became interested in it? Yeah. I mean, the first thing to communicate is that I do not use any drugs or plant medicine to do this. This is not something that involves altering my perception through an outside source. It's really through the sound of a drum. And this is a ancient indigenous practice across every continent. Every continent, except maybe Antarctica, has a tradition of shamanic journeying. Usually it was the medicine men or the shamans or the wise people used to go seek wisdom and seek understanding and guidance from whatever the mystery is that provides that. And I had learned how to do it just kind of coincidentally, although there's probably no coincidences, about 12 years ago. And I was doing it just on my own for thinking about the future of the business, relationships I was in. And so I had experimented a lot with it. And, and I was CEO of a health and wellness company. So I was also doing research to see, okay, what are all the things out there that are happening? But it wasn't until the pandemic and I sold the company that I started specifically journeying to specific plants and animals. That's when I realized, oh, this is why I learned how to do this. Now it all makes sense. This is what they'd been asking me to do for 10 years. And now I know what it is I have to do. And when I say they, I'm talking about the beings that come and talk to me, whether they're animals or spirits or I don't know, whatever they are, ancestors, 
you meet a lot of interesting people in your journey. Well, I know it's true for me, and many of the people I speak to love gardening. They say that if they hadn't had a spiritual connection to life before gardening, they certainly started to develop one once they started gardening because they could see the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. You see things up close and and you see how beautifully interdependent everything is. It's the best. Now, you say in your book to feel the magic. How can we do that? Well, I think the first way is to like open your heart and pay attention to what happens. So a really simple example for me is, you know, I'll get an email from somebody and maybe in the past when I was super busy, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. No, I don't need to respond to that. But now like I'll get a feeling it's like, oh no, you should respond to that. And I don't know why, but I do. And then like magic starts to happen. It's like, oh, they have the answer to a question I've been wondering about, or they know somebody I need to be in touch with. So it's kind of an openness to looking at everything as a clue to the mystery of life. And then it becomes like really fun. And you start to see that really everything, all the people, the plants, the birds, the bugs, they're all really trying to communicate and help us on our journey of discovering and learning. And it's a very loving view of the world. That is great. Now, since this is the Bird Harder podcast, you say in your book, you had a difficult relationship with a bird. Is this the vulture? Well, difficult because like early on in my journeying, I vulture showed up in one of my journeys and it scared the bejesus out of me. You know, it was like one of the only times I ever just like sat up and went, uh, no, thank you. Not today. (laughs) (laughs) But when you don't really understand birds that much, they can seem ugly and scary and gross. But over time, and I I live on the top of a little mountain, very little, it's like 900 feet elevation. There's a lot of vultures up here. And so when I went back to journey to the vulture the second time for the book, because they kind of got in my face and wouldn't stop, I was much more understanding of what they had been trying to tell me and it turned out to be a really beautiful a beautiful journey and their whole thing is like you're not your body your energy and a lot of what vultures do is they help clean up you know they clean up dead things as I say in the book you know you don't have anything to worry about from a vulture unless you're already dead but I think they also clean up dead energy And that's a good thing. You know, sometimes we want to let go of things and be reborn and vultures will help us do that. So they're really great birds to have around. Right. They are a little scary looking with the bald head. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But apparently that's to keep their face clean so they can eat. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So now you say with apologies to Darwin that survival is not about being the fittest. You say it's about survival of the happiest. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people misinterpret Darwin's theory of evolution as being survival of the fittest. That's what people use to justify like competition and killing things because it's like only the strong survive and you have to be the strongest in order to like dominate the environment. What he actually talked about was adaptation. So that nature and, you know, birds 
tend to adapt. You know, the, the ones who are able to adapt the most are the ones that survive. And, you know, the famous bird beak study that he did, I forget what kind of bird it was. It was really about adaptation. And I think there's truth to that, that unless we can adapt, we will not survive. But I think that in order to adapt, we need to be happy in our environment. And that's a factor of not competition, but collaboration and working together. And the more that we can work together, plants can work together, birds and plants, insects can collaborate and work together, the easier it is for everyone to adapt. So it is a lot of like, as we started the conversation about letting go of the paradigm of control and eradication and invasion and putting our own fascist dictators inside of us out to pasture and letting them be happy. Right. So in the book, you say everything falls apart. How can we best prepare ourselves for impermanence? It just seems like everything is falling apart. We've got climate change. We've got, uh, like you were saying, invasive insects and invasive plants. And I mean, for a, a traditional gardener, it must seem like in some way things are kind of collapsing. I think no more than they have always been. I'm an optimist. And I talk about this, I think, in the snake chapter, the rainbow spiral. We're constantly evolving, even though it doesn't feel like it, and in a circular spiral way, so that we tend to repeat things in history and feel like we don't learn the lessons. But each time we repeat something, we get better at it. But I do think we're at a critical juncture with the environment. Like we've never been to this place with the environment before, where we could not really destroy nature because nature is going to be fine without us, but we could destroy our species, our species, humans. So that's why I feel like it's important to put aside what we have learned in terms of conventional behavior and start operating from like a strategic survival standpoint, which is I don't care if you're a farmer or a rose gardener or a golf course keeper, stop using chemicals immediately. Like we don't need them. They're poisoning everything. They're using so much energy to create and produce and distribute. And then there's, you know, the packaging that it's so insane. That's a simple thing. We can just stop that. And then the soil and the plants can do what they were meant to do, which is absorb carbon and, and store it underground and keep the water clean. There's really simple, simple things that we can do, but we have to get out of our own minds. It's up to us now to really take strong action and find the courage to just do the obvious, simple things. Making those changes actually makes our lives easier. <laughs> now that I don't weed, I have so much more time to just enjoy my garden and enjoy life. And things look actually pretty awesome. So a lot of it is even just getting out of that idea that we have to work, 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 work all the time and make things like perfect. It's like, no, we don't. <laughs> no, we don't. Right. So as we wrap up here, I was going to ask you, as Mrs. P. Knuckle, what words of support would you have to offer for our children and our grandchildren or the next several generations? Mrs. Pinochle would say, 
be curious because everything has an incredible story. Be kind and loving because everything is deserving of being loved, including you. And make friends with everything and everyone and have fun doing it. That's where the magic is. That's what makes life worth living. I'd like to thank Maria Rodale for joining us today. You can find her book, Love Nature Magic, on Amazon.com. For more information on her writing, go to MariaRodale.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. As we end our final podcast of 2023, I'd like to thank you, our listeners, for another wonderful year of talking about birds and native gardening. Here's wishing you the merriest of holidays and the happiest of New Year's. We'll see you in 2024.